Things are running down. The universe is not designed to go well for you. Greetings. This is The Filter with Matt Asher. Dr. Michael Shermer is the founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine, the host of the Science Salon podcast, and a presidential fellow at Chapman University. For 18 years, he was a monthly columnist for Scientific American. He is the author of several New York Times bestsellers, including Why People Believe Weird Things and The Science of Good and Evil. His latest book is Giving the Devil His Due, Reflections of a Scientific Humanist. Michael, welcome to The Filter. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. So I I listened to Giving the Devil His Due on audio, which is about 13 hours worth of listening time. But (laughs) Wow, is it that long? That's right, I forgot. It is 13 and a half, uh, but it, it took me actually much longer than that to get through, not because it was hard to listen to. In fact, you narrate it quite well. Thank you. Uh, but because I had to stop the recording at least twice a chapter to jump down notes. Oh, nice. I like to hear that. Yeah. Which is different than doing it in a book where you can just kind of scribble in the margins uh, of the book. So yeah. it's an interesting yeah. experience. I listen to a lot of audiobooks, and I, I prefer that the author read their own books, even if they don't have a great voice. I don't like my voice particularly, but it's my voice, and I like listening to Hitch read his books and Dawkins read his books and and so on. It's nice, so um, I appreciate that. It's a lot of work to actually do it. It's harder than you think. I have new respect for voice artists or voice recorders or whatever they're called, voice actors, um, because that's, you know, those people that do that professionally, they're in the studio like eight hours a day reading Harry Potter novels or whatever, you know, that's really impressive. It is. It's amazing how many takes it, it can take. And I thought you nailed the kind of the emotional part of uh, doing the narration uh, and had some good range in there. So it was very nice listening to, uh, even though it, it, it did t- take some time there as I had to jot things down uh, from time to time. Right. And uh, there's obviously there's a lot of material there. But I, I want to start in with a thought I had when I was done listening. And it's not that hopeful a thought, but so your work ultimately I see as upholding of enlightenment values, whether you agree or disagree with your arguments, they're presented from a position where it's assumed that the people who disagree with you are interested in logic, data, experimentation, and discourse, and perhaps most of your readers are. But I don't think that's the moment we're in right now. Before I flesh out that thought myself, I want to ask if you'd be willing to give your thoughts on the extent to which the Western world has turned away from Enlightenment values as an ideal. Well, certainly some have, and they get the most attention. Um, The illiberal, woke progressives in the academy, for example, Um, certainly voice anti-enlightenment, really anti-liberal or illiberal as they're called, values. Uh, To what extent they believe that or their virtue signaling is not clear. Uh, Maybe there's some balance of both. Uh, But I think for the most part, um, despite the, you know, sort of tumultuous state of democracies and the slight rise of authoritarianism and populism around the world, 
and a slight decrease in liberality of democracies. For the most part, the trend lines, uh, you know, continue in the positive direction in the long run. The, the over the centuries, uh, certainly maybe the last century, and you know, it's been it's been a hundred years exactly last month since women uh, got the right to vote in America. So in a way, you could say America wasn't even a liberal democracy until 1920. And uh, so that, you know, that's pretty late in the game. And uh, Switzerland was the last uh, country, not last country on earth, but last of, of the, you know, Western countries to give women the vote. 1971, right? So whatever setbacks you think you're experiencing now, you, you don't have to look very far back to see how much worse it was and that these are little, you know, blips on the radar by comparison, um, you know, so what we're going through now with the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, and the protests against police violence and so on, um, that, that, that's not really new. If you, you know, go back to 1968 and the protests over the Vietnam War and and police brutality against African-Americans then, um, you know, these, these I think I see the pendulum is swinging back and forth. And uh, but but overall, the curve is pushing in, in the right direction. I, I remain fairly optimistic. This is to be sure, 2020, a, a tumultuous year uh, with COVID-19, the economic uh, crisis, you know, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, uh, all, all that on, on top of, you know, a pandemic, <laughs> you know, so we're, we're really experiencing maybe f at least four upheavals. And uh, it's not, not clear what the long-term implications will be, but, you know, I, I think if you use some historical comparisons like the 1918 Spanish flu, which was much, much worse than anything that we're experiencing now or will experience unless the virus mutates into a much more virulent form. Uh, you know, they recovered pretty well <laughs> in the 19 so-called roaring 20s and then the depression and, you know, just things continue on. So I think we'll, we'll probably be okay. I think what is disconcerting to me is not necessarily that there'll be fringe movements or people who are pushing back against this. Your book is a lot about evolution in, in certain ways. And one of the things that happens, of course, is is that people arrive on strategies and the sort of the fit strategies are the ones that get replicated. We're in a time, and this is something I've talked a, a lot about on the podcast, where things happen in a viral way, not just literally, but in terms of memes and movements. And what seems to be happening right now to me is that people are learning that what works, what is a kind of a fit strategy, is a very high level of aggression and mob rule. This is, to me, one of the central things that people learned during uh, the lockdowns and the protests against them, that if you wanted to have a voice, you had to join up with a lot of other people and be really angry. And then you could have your way and you could go out in the streets. But if you just tried to make arguments against house arrest, nobody really cared. So my concern is that what seems to be happening is that sort of a learning on a broader scale that the tactics or strategy that's most effective is one of, of mob rule and, and sometimes even violence. Yeah, but in the long run, that's the least effective tactic. We know from research uh, on the use of violence versus nonviolent political uh, reform versus revolution over the past century. Erica Chenoweth at Harvard has um, the best data set on this, and she's written several, several important books as well as a, a number of uh, peer-reviewed journal papers. 
and her colleagues have, you know, tracked hundreds and hundreds of uh, political movements uh, from very small to huge over the last century. And by far and away, the nonviolent protests and reforms are successful in getting what it is that the protesters want. What is it that they want? What kind of laws do they want changed? What kind of policies do they want passed? And so forth. The more violent the revolution, the fewer of their goals that they meet. And the most violent ones, the ones that turn to terrorism, achieve almost none of their goals. And in fact, they usually have the opposite effect. The more violent it becomes, the more uh, people turn against it in the long run. You may get a little temporary boost in support for the first few days or weeks, um, but the, the moment you start looting and torching businesses in inner cities, for example, you lose the kind of support you need to, to keep going and, and, and get momentum to actually produce real change. So I recommend um, uh, listeners you know, look at Erica Chenoweth's um, research on this. It's pretty clear, um, you know, Martin Luther King and Gandhi before him were right that that nonviolence is the way to go. And it's not some airy-fairy uh, metaphysical idea that, that, that drives the change. It's, it's very much boots on the ground, practical um, support that you get. Um, you know, mothers and, 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 and minorities and children and adolescents and the elderly, you know, they're far more likely to support your cause if you're nonviolent. The, the moment, you know, mobs turn to violence and, and guns and bombs and, and fires and, you know, pe- people, mo- most rational, reasonable people, they run for the hills. They don't want any part of that. So those kind of movements lose their uh, ground support. And in fact, they lose their uh, their own uh, shock troops pretty quickly uh, because most people don't don't want to go that route. Yes, you can find a few dozen to a few hundred, uh, you know, fringe nuts, uh, usually young men in their twenties and thirties that are just kind of looking to, to to stir shit up and, and cause trouble and get into fights. Uh, but th- th- you'll always have that, and they'll they're they're just looking for something. It doesn't th- so they're not ideological warriors in a cause. So uh, you, you don't even get those. No, I, I think they're they're shock troops um, being used by others, perhaps as part of agenda, perhaps not. Perhaps there's just a lot of chaos out there. But I want to push back a little bit there because I think that you're right, and I don't doubt the research that shows that popular opinion is going to cut against any group that becomes violent. But I think we're in a bit of a different situation here where what matters is not popular opinion per se. What matters is the opinion of a small group of highly dedicated, highly intolerant in some ways actors. And we've seen that growing from the kind of revolt at Evergreen State where, mm. um, you know, where some professors were were uh, pushed out by a very small but highly vocal group to what is happening with BLM and others. It's n- not that, it, it, to some extent, you know, it does matter the overall popular opinion. But to uh, another degree, all that matters is that you have a group of people who are driving the culture forward and that they have the power to do that because they're a big enough and angry enough mob. That's what I see anyway. Mm, yeah, well, there I think you're right with in terms of silencing people. You know, cancel culture is real. And, uh, you know, to, to what extent they can actually affect real political change, probably not. 
but they can silence people by self-censorship. So most most students, for example, self-censor, even though uh, the major, vast majority of students are not super politically far-left, progressive, woke people. Like If you watch Fox News and, and you watch Tucker Carlson's weekly campus craziness segments, I don't know if he still does that, but he used to have them every week. And, uh, you know, there's just enough craziness around the country, and there's over 5,000 colleges and universities, so a lot of large numbers. You can find somebody doing something crazy on campus enough to fill a five-minute uh, segment on Fox News once a week. And if that's all you watch, you'd think that it, if you went anywhere near a college campus, it would just be utter chaos, just anarchy. And yet, you know, I've, I've, I've done hundreds and hundreds of public talks at public university at universities and colleges, and you never see anything happening. Mostly students are just just hold up in their dorms or, or, or they're in their classrooms or they're in the library or, or, or they're in the cafe or in they're in the gym uh, working out or doing the climbing wall or whatever. I mean, colleges are pretty peaceful places. So really, it's a, it's a minority of people and it's, it's pretty rare that you see that kind of craziness. But, but to your point that it's just enough that most students think, well, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. Uh, you know, I just don't want to get involved. I just don't. So they, they just shut up. And it's hard to get students, you know, I teach at Chapman University, and, and these are seminar classes. I have 20 to 25 students each semester. And, uh, you know, the whole point of going to a private university like that in a small class like that is so uh, the students can talk. And we can have discussions and conversations and debates and whatnot. But it's really hard to draw them out now. And I ask him, you know, are you self-censoring because you're afraid, you know, politically incorrect? Yes, yes, absolutely. And uh, so even though the, the chances of them getting canceled, any one of them, is pretty low, um, there's just enough of it that it does silence people. And I think that probably spills out over into the the public sphere, into corporations, into, um, you know, government agencies and stuff, because these, these people are now graduating from college and getting jobs. So I think, and there's enough coverage of the cancel culture incidences that people are a little nervous about uh, what they say in, in public forums. And uh, so, yeah, that, that effect is real. For sure. And it does seem to me like the sort of the window of allowable discourse has shrunk in, in some ways, or that, as I say, the small minority has been allowed to dictate what that window is, perhaps starting in a small subculture and then moving to more broadly into the academy and then into culture and so forth, and taking over in some ways more and more of the culture and the media. And now we have a situation where you have most people get their information not just from the you know the mainstream media but from social media and you have platforms who are bending uh, their rules or deciding who they're going to cancel or deplatform based on what they you know based on that same angry mob so at some point my fear anyway is that people will no longer even recognize that this majority opinion exists because it's essentially been deplatformed and hidden from them. Does that make sense? Yep, yep, I, I'd say that's that's real. This is this itself is also not new. You know, I was just reading Kurt Anderson's new book, Evil Geniuses. Kurt Anderson's a great writer. He did a fantasy land about the history of superstition and, and irrationality in, in America going back 500 years. Super interesting book. But his new book um, is about the rise of the right ideology 
uh, sort of conservative ideology from, like, say, the 1950s through the present. And the big push in the 1970s and 80s was the rise of these think tanks and that, uh, you know, like the Cato Institute and Reason Magazine, the Reason Foundation. And so now, a lot of these groups I know pretty well, and, and, and I like reading their stuff. But there's actually, you know, dozens and dozens of them, you know, American Enterprise Institute and the Heritage Foundation. And they've kind of outgunned the left and their think tanks. And, and really, it's a battle of ideas is what we're talking about. And, you know, it's a it's a culture war that's much larger and goes back way, way longer than anything that we're talking about now in terms of cancel culture and those sorts of things. So, you know, in a way, it's okay that this is all unfolding because this is how it works. You've got to just get your voice out there and and, and try to, to get your points across and try to win over um, support. And um, I remember I did a d- debate with Dinesh D'Souza, I've done half a dozen debates with him, mostly on God and, and religion, but we've done a few on politics. Anyway, I remember at, at dinner with him one night after one of our debates, he was telling me his plan for the future. This was like in the early 2000s. And he explained to me this battle of culture ideas for conservatives. They feel that they've been shut out of the media and the academy and Hollywood and that they need to get back into that. They need to have their own newspapers and, and networks, you know, Witness, Fox News, and the rise of conservative talk radio as, as prominent examples. And But also books and journals and, and magazines and op-ed pieces. So, you know, when you meet these people from like Cato Institute and, and Reason Foundation and so on, mostly what they do, they have huge staffs. It's incredible. They have dozens and dozens of people working there. What do they do all day? They write op-ed pieces. They write white papers. They, they just pump out material from a conservative or the case of Cato and, and Reason, a libertarian perspective. So I don't really blame you know liberals who are, say, even far-left progressive wokes from trying to get their voice out, out there. That That's how it works in a free society, you know, and it's sort of a, a marketplace of ideas or a competition of ideas, and you see what happens as opposed to censorship. I'm absolutely against censorship. And, um, you know, so um, anyway, Kurt Anderson tracks that pretty carefully. Now, he, he he's left. He's a liberal himself, so he doesn't say much about the liberal think tanks, but they're out there too. <laughs> and, uh, you know, George Soros funds his groups and the Koch brothers fund their groups and you know and people are competing to get their op-eds published in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the LA Times and 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 the Boston Globe and the Chicago Tribune and so on I mean that that's how it that's how it works and now you have all these online forums like Quillette and skept my own skeptic.com and you know there's and all the podcasts you know now podcasts are huge and, and they're drawing millions of people and, uh, and what are they doing? They're mostly talking about uh, having guests talk about ideas. So, um, you know, I, again, there's nothing new in what we're experiencing. This, is, this goes all the way back for half a century, uh, but this is kind of where the action is. I, I think that what seems new to me, and, you know, I'm not that old, but, you know, I'm well into my 40s here. Oh, to be 40 again. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I suppose, how one feels every decade, you know, oh, to be a decade yeah, earlier, exactly. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, so, you know, somewhere somewhere in the middle here, and at any rate, um, have seen some life. But what I haven't seen so much before is what seems to be 
you you talk a lot about the war of ideas and the marketplace for ideas. There's two ways to win a war or a battle or a game. One is to outcompete your opponent on the field. The other is to change the rules or bribe the ref. Uh, what I see right now is that the, the the left having in some ways consolidated power within not full cultural power, but cultural power within those institutions you mentioned, within the media, within Hollywood, and and uh, uh, within universities. Have now that they have that, they've decided that maybe a more effective strategy for winning is not to try to out-argue, certainly, especially when you're trying to uphold ideas like, you know, like sex doesn't exist, gender doesn't exist. Those are very hard ideas to uphold in, a, you know, with uh, with ideas, with in the marketplace of ideas, that it's a much more effective strategy. And this, I guess, gets back to the, you know, the thing that scares me the most about what people are learning at the meta level. What they're learning is that the best strategy is not to try to win in the marketplace of ideas. The best strategy is to deplatform your opponents or get them thrown off you know, um, uh, campuses or shut them down for what they want to say in one way or the other. And that short circuits the marketplace for ideas. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think you're right. That's exactly what they think is the right strategy. It's the exact opposite. That's the wrong strategy. That's the worst thing you could do. Because first, it makes people wonder what this person had to say, that they're so dangerous that they've been canceled, deplatformed. I, I better look this person up. And that's quite easy to do now. My my uh, type specimen for this is Ian Hersey Alley when she was invited to give the commencement speech at Columbia University. I think this was five years ago now. You know, for this, you get an honorary doctorate. They give you, you know, get the hood and the whole thing. And you're there at this graduation ceremony. You give the speech. It's, it's, it's a, Jared Diamond once explained to me, it's a way for universities to get big name speakers to speak for free. <laughs> you give them an honorary doctorate. You don't have to pay their $20,000 speaking fee or whatever. But Ian is, you know, she's one of the great champions of women's rights ever. I mean, I to me, she'll go down as one of the legends in history for um, civil rights and women's rights and, and, and so forth. And yet she got canceled. Why? Because she's critical of Islam. And that's, you know, that, that's no longer acceptable. You, you're an Islamophobe if you are critical at all of any of their ideas or practices. Of course, she speaks with great authority. She was a, a Muslim, and she experienced um, female genital mutilation. She was supposed to, she was in a, an arranged marriage that she escaped and and had to leave her country, and, and just, it's an incredible story. And yet she gets canceled. But here's the backfire effect in my point. The Wall Street Journal published her speech. Here is what I was going to say. And so instead of a couple thousand people sitting there, you know, a couple hundred students and all their parents and family and so forth, you, you get the Wall Street Journal, two and a half million readers, you know, boom. So by canceling Ian Hersey Alley, you just escalated the size of her audience by orders of magnitude. So, you know, good job, guys. If that was, that's what your goal was, you failed. You not only failed, you went the opposite direction. And of course, you know, Bill Maher got canceled at uh, UC Berkeley. No, I don't think he got canceled. They tried to cancel him. He spoke anyway, and they booed him or whatever. And of course, he does a whole bit on it on his show the next week. And then he many, he brings it up like every couple months, how he was, you know, almost canceled and so on. So really, it has the opposite effect. And also, more moderate people may think, 
well, you know, I, I want to find out what this person has to say. It's my right to hear. So it's not just the speaker's right to speak. It's the listener's right to listen. So by canceling or deplatforming the speaker, maybe there was a lot of people who wanted to hear what that person had to say. And probably they totally disagree with, say, a conservative comes on campus. But if you don't even know what the arguments are, how strong is your own argument? As John Stuart Mill said, he who knows only his own side of the argument doesn't even know that. And so that's kind of the whole point of bringing speakers to college campuses who disagree with or have points of view different from that of of most of the professors is so the students can hear what what it is people are arguing because they don't, most of them don't know like when i ask my students what do you think the best arguments are for the pro-life position on the abortion issue M- most of them have no idea they, they've never listened to a pro-life um, proponent, a public proponent, someone like a, a Ben Shapiro. So I, I have them listen to Ben's videos. Now, I disagree with him. I think I could, uh, if not beat him in a debate on abortion, I could at least tie him. Uh, but at least I know his arguments, you know. And, and so this, if the students don't know, that, if you don't know the pro-life position, you you don't actually know the, the pro-choice position. And so you, you, you have to listen to what other people say. Now, you know, that said, you don't have to invite everybody to college campus. You know, there's only, you know, I mean, I know this market pretty well. I think maybe on any given year, any campus invites maybe 10 outside speakers, right? So, and there's thousands to choose from. Maybe you want the slam poet or the rock star or, or, or the, you know, the feminist activist, or you want the atheist or, or you want the conservative, whatever, you know, there's thousands to choose from. All of them have different stories. And so you pick 10. So maybe you don't want to invite Milo Yiannopoulos because, you know, he's not a serious scholar. He's not an intellect. He doesn't write, um, you know, scholarly books. He doesn't, uh, you know, present the conservative position in some kind of intellectual way like, say, a George Will would or, or I would say a Charles Murray. Charles Murray is a formidable intellect. Even though a lot of people don't like him, uh, he's a smart guy and he's got some really good arguments. Now, I, I, I think he's wrong on some points. And I'm, I've debated him on some of these things, but that, you know, that's the point. That's how you find out. Yeah. One of the things I appreciated about your book was that you do a good job of, I think, what's called steel manning, the opposition's argument and presenting the, the best case you can find for what you disagree with. Uh, in there, I think you do a good job of that in the in the book. Thank you. You mentioned a, a couple of people whose profile has grown based on efforts to deplatform them, but I think for every one of those folks, there are also perhaps thousands of other people who had no fame to begin with, but posted something wrong on Facebook, and now they find themselves off Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is, yeah. and no longer able to make that argument. I love the idea that everyone should be interested in the best possible arguments that the opposition has to offer. I'm not so convinced that in this particular cultural moment, people are interested in hearing those arguments. It seems like at least those who have, you know, who have the most vocal position in, you know, in certain institutions are most interested in not hearing the strongest arguments. But perhaps that's too harsh. I don't know. Oh, no, no. I thought, I think that's a good assessment. Um, you know, uh, Heather McDonald, uh, uh, has been pretty supportive of, of police, so-called police life matter, blue lives matter, whatever you want to call it. But but her arguments are entirely empirical. They're based on studies that have been done in which she makes the case that 
um, that that there is not systematic or systemic uh, violence and racism and on the part of police departments. It's too broad and sweeping a generalization that captures too many um, false positives. That is to say, uh, you're accusing police who are not racist of being racist because the asshole in, in the other room is a racist. And, you know, we have to distinguish between, um, you know, individuals and whole groups. And, you know, this is kind of the whole point of, of uh, combating racism and, and, and bigotry of all kinds is the stereotyping cognition that we do. It's perfectly normal to lump things into categories. That, that That's what we do. Uh, and most of the time, that's fine. But it's when we do it, you know, judging, say, an individual based on their gonads or their the melanin in their skin uh, for w- what they're likely to do in terms of their intelligence or, or, or their criminality or, or whatever people are trying to do. That That's where the problem uh, arises. And then um, when you turn that around to be a so-called anti-racist and, and you ba- basically accuse all whites of being racist or all cops of being potentially violent and racist, there's going to be too many false positives in there. You know, most people are not like that. And, and, and you know, to turn, t- turn the table the other direction, it's like the, the problem with stop and frisk in New York City, that policy is not dissimilar from um, the Homeland Security's response to 9-11, or actually it was invented after 9-11, and, and the whole um, obsession with, with capturing terrorists at airports, and so now we all have to take our shoes off and so forth. Um, the problem with that is that you're tackling the problem from a too, too broad a perspective. And so you're going to get a lot of false positives. And the, and, and the reason is, is because hardly anybody's a terrorist. So although you think you can profile, uh, you know, it's going to be a young male in his 20s or 30s of, from the Middle East, whatever your criteria are, the vast, vast, you know, 99.9% of, of those people are not terrorists. So no matter how low you set the gain <laughs> so that the filter doesn't get too many false positives, you're going to get tons of false positives because there's so many people you're going to be, in, in, in the other example, stop and frisking, right? So, you know, the moment there's an uptick in crime like there was in New York City in the uh, you know, late 60s, 70s, 80s, and it didn't start going down until 1993. Um, but the problem had gotten so bad, relatively speaking, that it felt like, you know, it just every every other person in New York City is a criminal. But they're not. You know, again, 99%, 99.9% of people in New York City are not criminals. So no matter how many you throw into that basket, um, you know, the vast th- that you stop and frisk, the vast majority are not. So you're going to have a lot of false positives. And uh, so, you know, the criminal justice system has been dealing with this for centuries. This is, you know, Blackstone's, you know, 10 to 1 ratio of, you know, how many people were willing to let go free who are guilty versus convict somebody who's innocent. And his ratio of 10 to 1 is, is, is pretty much what most people think should be in terms of like their intuitions about justice and what's fair. And yet the moment you ramp up these programs, you're violating that principle. You're going to get way more uh, innocent people being convicted, and, and that's the problem. Certainly there is a problem in general with, well, with stereotyping or lumping people in with the group based on identity characteristics. And even if there are some gains that you get by, at least in terms of reducing criminality by doing that, you're certainly going to face a, a backlash from people who don't like being harassed, who are perfectly 
innocent, and 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 then that happens. You mentioned uh, MLK in your book and talked about his ideal of trying to look at every individual as an individual and judge them based on their character. I think that is kind of the height of the Enlightenment ideal, but I don't know that that's the again the moment we're in. Um, it seems to me I, I now often see people on the right try to bring out MLK and say, "Hey, this is a great ideal." But I don't think they get anything more than sort of puzzlement or silence on from the left. Like, yeah, that that was a long time ago. We're no longer in that moment. Yeah, yeah. We're no longer in the moment of judging people based on their individual actions. We're in a different moment right now. Yeah, for sure, uh, absolutely. And in this, the moment you say something like what I just said, uh, it seems like you're denying that there is police brutality and that some cops are racist. And so let's say it. Yes, that's true. You know, there's probably a certain self-selection factor of who wants to be a cop. Again, most of them are good people, but you're you're slightly more likely to say get somebody who is more psychopathic on the psychopathic scale, maybe more prone to violence, and then you throw them in a training program in which you teach them to look for that, and then you send them to an inner city where they're more likely to find it anyway. Uh, you know, young men driving around in the middle of the night with guns in their car. What are they doing? You're, you know, you're more likely to interpret what you're looking at as a threat, and uh, and, and then that escalates. Um, you know, so you know what to do about that. You know, I I don't know. I don't study this professionally, but I think it's clear that some reforms need to be made. That is to say, this certain method of you know the naked chokehold or the knee on the on the back or neck as a way of keeping somebody subdued until reinforcement comes or something like that. If you ban that, which seems like a good idea because, you know, it's sort of a horrifying thing to see it on, on these videos, what do you replace it with? You know, the billy club, the gun, tasers, uh, which all have much higher risks uh, of causing harm or death, uh, or you just let them go. You know, maybe that's an option. I don't know. Uh, you know, the case of the, I forget the, the black man's name and the who fell asleep in the line at Wendy's in Atlanta, and um, you know this this started off perfectly innocent in this conversation. Just, the whole thing's on film; you can watch it online. It, you know, it's forty four minutes of just nothing, and then one minute of chaos and and horror. Um, and, you know, so to me, watching that, it seemed like why didn't they just let him go? I mean, he he takes off. You know, they have his keys to his car. They know where he lives. It's like, just, okay, let's just calm down. We're just going to go pick this guy up tomorrow or something like that. But, you know, cops are people and, you know, they, their tempers and their stress hormones are spiking. And, you know, they're not acting like rational beings. Uh, Jocko Wilnick makes this point. He was on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast talking about training. You know, maybe this is what is especially needed is more training, a lot more training. You know, he was saying in the Navy SEALs, they train, you know, like eight hours a week. Of, of, of grappling and wrestling and just be, be, as he points out, you know, most people have no idea what it's like to be grabbed, physically grabbed by somebody and like thrown to the ground. What do you do? You know, most people have no idea what they would do. They'd probably come up swinging or if they had a gun, they'll just grab their gun and start shooting, you know, and he goes, with training, you learn how to de-escalate that situation uh, without anybody getting hurt, right? And I think cops have a total of like eight hours of that kind of training for their whole you know, training before they become cops. So maybe that's the kind of thing that's needed. But this idea that there's systemic racism and all, you know, everybody, all whites are racist or all cops are racist and this is the problem. 
so therefore we have to go through these um, desensitization training programs and and uh, everyone has to take the implicit uh, attitudes test uh, and, and then the and then the uh, kind of debiasing programs related to that uh, for which there is zero evidence that they work and, and and the reason why they don't work is because most people that are forced to take them, like when Starbucks had all three hundred thousand of their employees right. take yeah. this, you know, the, you know, ninety nine point nine percent of those employees are not racist. But I understand why people are angry. You know, you you can't help but watch these videos and just get in, in, inflamed. It's infuriating. It's, you know, I can feel the stress hormones in flowing through my body like god damn it that is just oh wrong. for sure yeah and some of i think some of what makes this so much of a moment like this is that everything is now videotaped and you get to see things that you know that were hidden and that's both good in the sense that you get to see what's really happening out there and what people have been complaining about for a long time but also you're judging all of a giant group based on the actions of a a small few um, with a snippet that may not give you the the full context even in that case. I see it too, not just the availability of these videos being a factor, but I think that this is a, a moment of a renewal in reputational contagion where being close to someone who is considered bad is enough to get you considered bad and, and a return of a certain kind of honor culture, though you, I think, speak in a positive way about honor culture in the book, no? Well, uh, th there I was <clears throat> kind of echoing this discussion about um, the culture of victimhood versus the honor culture. In the culture of victimhood, you, you kind of nourish the idea of being a victim, and then you, you go to the authorities to right the wrong um, and instead of settling the small disputes yourself. I mean, we have a criminal justice system and a military and cops and so on for a reason, um, to handle the big stuff and like real crimes. But, you know, on a college campus where you don't like somebody's Halloween costume, for gosh sakes, don't go to the dean to report this person, you know, just say, hey, dude, don't be a dick wearing that outfit. And then he says what he says and you have your discussion, you work it out. You know, that's how adults do it. And, and the idea of, you know, children should learn how to solve these disputes themselves, like on a playground where the parents don't rush in to, to resolve the conflict. You just let them do it. And that's how they learn, you know, really. And that's in a way that's how to learn how to live in a democracy as an adult is to learn how to uh, compromise and settle disputes as children on a playground. <laughs> So the idea here, this isn't my idea, but it is, um, it, it is that the culture of honor that has, you know, been dominant for so long is now being pushed back or replaced by this culture of victimhood. And you see this in people that, you know, that kind of nourish the, you know, the, the victimhood status they gain by going on social media and talking incessantly about uh, their victimhood. And um, I actually have a talk to, with my students about this because I worry that this is going to spread through the academy and these kids will then graduate and go off into the real world, you know, looking for trouble, looking look, looking to find examples of, you know, why they're a victim. And now I don't challenge any of my students on whether they are really victims. You know, maybe some of them were abused as children or molested or they were sexually assaulted by some guy in high school. Who knows? Um, but the, the real issue is is not what happened to you, but what you do with it. Uh, you know, again, if, if there's a crime committed, then report it and, that, you know, let the legal system, the criminal justice system take care of it from there. But what are you going to do about it? Are you going to live the rest of your life as a victim, you know, in that status and, and that you 
treat yourself that way and then you convey to others that's how you want to be treated as a victim, you know, or are you going to somehow work past it and get past it, grow from it, grow stronger and move forward? And of course, I encourage the latter. Uh, again, not denying anybody's real victimhood status. I just assume it's all real. Every story that these students tell me of bad things that happened to them, I just assume they're all real. Okay, now what? Right. Certainly the the culture right now is, it's a funny way to put it, but empowers victims or turns victimhood into a kind of currency. I see what you're saying there about that. I, I think I see maybe three legs to this stool. One would be perhaps the mentality or the culture of, of victimhood or perhaps just overly litigious way of being where every slight turns into something that is a microaggression and that microaggression needs to be handled in the most extreme way possible and is interpreted in the most damaging way to you possible. I see a, a resurgence of honor culture in the form of a renewal of the ideas of shame and of reputational contagion where you have people who have bad ideas and those people are therefore bad and anyone who is associated with them is bad or who invites them to come on campus and talk is platforming evil. And then perhaps the third leg, for me anyway, is a kind of bourgeois values culture where you are doing your best not to worry about slights or reputation under most circumstances because you just want to run your corner store and you're not going to peer too deeply into the soul of the person who comes in before you sell them a pack of gum. You don't want to know. You don't really care, right? You just want to get on with your business and have positive transactions. And if that person on the way out grumbles something under their breath that you don't like or you take as a slight, you're not going to go and never come back. You're just going to brush it off and, and move on. There is something there in the honor culture wherein you you had a system actually of duels where if things got elevated enough, they got violent. And I think paradoxically, that did create a situation where you were encouraged to shrug off a certain level of slight because you knew that if you elevated it enough that you were in actual you know physical danger, that you weren't just going to the administration and complaining and that that would do the opposite of putting you in physical danger. It would put the other person in, you know, in danger of getting ejected from the academy. But at any rate, that's my take on those kind of three ways in which broad cultures uh, exist. Yeah, uh, Woody Allen used to joke about, um, you know, finding racism or bigotry where it doesn't really exist. He said, I think it was... Uh, may have been Annie Hall or might have been Han I forget which of his films where he, he and his buddy they call each other Max and and, he, and Woody Allen is saying to his buddy you know hey did you did you hear that he said Jew go to dinner Jew Jew go to dinner he's like Max I think you're hearing things that aren't really there <laughs> and then in one of his stand-ups he had a bit about you know that that his toaster made an anti-semitic remark you know and uh, or the I think it was the elevator made an anti-semitic remark anyway um yeah of course that's the problem again you're you, you know, it's a signal detection problem. You're going to find too many false positives. You know, of course, racism does exist. Uh, there are assholes out there who do make remarks, and that's never going to go to zero, no matter how uh, optimistic I want to draw those curves out. Steve Pinker and I are both empirically based optimists. 
or realists in this front, but it's never going to go to zero. So, you know, if you're walking around, you're gay, you're black, woman, Jew, whatever, you're always going to encounter some asshole who makes a remark or who does something to you that, you know, perhaps it does harm you in some way. It discriminates against you when you're up for a job or something like that. Um, so really, in the end, it, you just have to deal with it. You just have to, you know, grow a thick skin and and push forward no matter what. You know, on any given day, you know, there's things, you know, the second law of thermodynamics, entropy, things are running down. You know, the, the, the universe is not designed to go well for you. It's designed to go poorly for you. And so the whole point of life, the first, the second law of thermodynamics is the first law of life, as I described it in Heavens on Earth, that the reason we die is because the universe is running down. <laughs> That's just the way it goes. And, uh, you know, in terms of like picking careers, you know, there's you know, 10,000 things I can't do. You know, and I have my own podcast. I interview these really smart people. I had uh, this guy, Paul Halpern, on who does quantum physics. I have no idea what he's talking about. I mean, I kind of have it conceptually, but, you know, it's like there's yet another thing I can't do well. You know, there's so many. But I just do a few things well. So the whole point is just find something you can do and do that. Most things you can't do. So, you know, you just have to, I know this is easy for a middle-aged white guy to say, you know, just ignore the racism. Yeah, but you know, there's you know, there's lots and lots of blacks and women and Jews and so forth who have been very successful despite facing a, you know a sea of assholes trying to hold them down. So it is doable. I'm not saying it's okay. It's not okay, but it's 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 possible to do that. I wish you know in, in the BLM movement there, there'd be a little more recognition of African Americans who have faced, you know, terrible discrimination and somehow they've pushed through it and they're very successful and they should be highlighted as role models. You know, here's how you can do it. And uh, I think it was uh, Tanahashi Coates who in his book, he has this conversation with his son, you know, this is what the world's like. It's really bad, you know, and you're going to go out there and, and it's going to be terrible. You know, it's like, I'm not sure that's the best message to give to your kid. Again, it's hard for me, like, white guy, you know, it's like, how can you say that? Well, there are plenty of black people that are saying this. Shelby Steele, you know, is saying this. And Thomas Sowell has been saying this. And and John McWhorter more recently, you know, he, he called that white fragility book, you know, the dumbest book he's ever read, <laughs> you know, and this whole, you know, anti-racism, how to be an anti-racist. You know, this is just, you know, race baiting. In your book, you talk a fair amount about pattern matching and the ways in which human beings are essentially, my word's not yours, but programmed to find linkages and patterns where there aren't any. You have a nice example of being able to come up with a number and then find all kinds of examples of that number in like the Washington Monument or the pyramids. And I think that, you know, that is a natural tendency that human beings have. And it's certainly accentuated now that we have essentially unlimited data about just about anything available to us. And as mentioned, there are videos out there of all kinds of interactions. So I think you have a situation in which whatever you want to find, you will be able to find. And so if you go out there believing a particular thing, uh, you will find things to confirm your biases pretty quickly. I, I pushed that against uh, Andrew Gelman, a Columbia University statistician, and hmm. he was not that amenable to the idea that, you know, that at this point in time, our 
posteriors, uh, you know, are, are what we decide is true after we've done the looking tends to be exactly the same as our priors or, you know, what we sought out to find. Yeah. So we're finding what we look for almost 100% of the time right now. So another point I wanted to make on a, another related subject of this, you brought up uh, speech as violence. So this actually, this idea is very old one. Actually, it comes again a century ago, 1919, Oliver Wendell Holmes Supreme Court just, Justice decision in the case of Shank versus the United States. These are super famous lines that have been used ever since. The most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. The question in every case is whether the words used are used in such circumstances and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger that they will bring about the substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent. So that clear and present danger based on, you know, uh, giving false information or saying something that in in inflames people to act. You know, this is where this idea that words can become violent or they are a form of violence. And uh, Holmes himself later said, well, I, I, I kind of went too far on that decision uh, because in, in that particular case, um, the clear and present danger was um, draft protesters. That is, the United States had uh, instituted conscription to get more soldiers uh, for the entry into the war against Germany in the First World War. So there were a group of um, socialists from Philadelphia. This is Schenck. Charles Shank, and they were printing flyers, posters, that were deemed to be dangerous. Well, what, what did these posters say? They, they were handed out to draft-age men saying, it is your constitutional right to not have to be forced to go into the army, that conscription is a form of slavery, because basically the government is saying, we're now going to own your body for this period of time, two years or four years or whatever. And so Shank was arguing that's a violation of the 13th Amendment. And the Fourteenth Amendment as well. Anyway, so uh, now that's a debatable point. You know, okay, I'm not, uh, I'm not adjudicating that particular debate, although I think it's a good argument. Uh, but the idea that even saying it is somehow a clear and present danger to the United States—what? I mean, you know, in the Vietnam War, that was a badge of honor to be a protester. I was too young for that uh, then, but, uh, but you know, that became commonplace. So you know, the idea that. We can figure out which speech is safe and which is dangerous is itself a dangerous idea because then you once you create that basket of words you can put in and go, those are the bad ones, and you start with the N-word, say, something like that, that everybody would agree, that goes in the basket. You know, and then you start coming up with other words and phrases, and pretty soon you have lists of microaggressions that the UC system issued a few years ago to all their students and faculty and administrators. These are the things you can't say. Like, What? I mean, it's, and it's just incredible to, how ridiculous the, the, you know, the words and phrases were. Like, where are you from? Uh, or, wow, you speak English really well. Or, uh, wow, you're really good at math. You know, okay. So, like, my wife's from Germany, and, and she has no accent at all, and her English is perfect. It's better than most Americans. And people are always telling her, I, I can't believe you're from Germany. Your English is so good. Now, allegedly, that's a microaggression. That's a form of bigotry against well, I guess in this case, Germans or whatever, she just smiles and says, thank you, I paid attention in school. <laughs> so what happened was it seemed like a good idea, like say in the 60s, like in the feminist movement as well, you know, using Ms. instead of Mrs. and little things like that, that most of us changed 
and, and adopted, uh, and I think to the benefit of culture at large. But the moment you start to, say, legislate that, we're going to have a law that says you can't use these words or phrases, or you just have a list like the UC system, then people just quit speaking. They're just going to start uh, self-censoring because they're so afraid because the list is so long now. And uh, that that's the problem with it. You know, 99.999% of words are not violence. They're not the same. And it's very rare, very, very rare that someone gives a speech and that uh, after that it follows a violent uh, riot. Um, you know, there are a few, you know, Hitler gives a speech and before you know it, you know, Jews are being herded into gas chambers. Yes, okay, but there's a lot of steps in between the speech and the actual action that has to take place. So, you know, the idea of, again, a, a, someone like a Milo Yiannopoulos coming on campus and, and then before you know it, uh, you know, things he says are a form of violence. Well, actually what happens is the opposite, is the, pe- the people that are critical of Milo, when you watch those videos, they're the ones that are becoming violent. And uh, but again, back to who you should invite, you know, I mean, he's kind of a professional provocateur that he was hoping that they would respond that the way they did. It's like, oh, my God, I can't believe you people fell for this guy. You know, I was even tweeting as he's going on stage. If you're upset about him, just don't go. That's the last thing he wants. Right. As a public speaker, I can tell you the worst thing in the world is an empty auditorium. It just feels so bad. No one cares what I have to say. What a bummer. But if you have a room full of people and protesters and signs and people are going crazy, people like Milo, they like that. That's what they want. So don't give it to them. That's the response. You know, don't don't pass laws or issue lists of bad things to say. Just ignore the people. I wonder if there's some interesting lessons there, thinking back towards the broader history now before my time, to what was it that caused those kind of laws and feelings that it was acceptable to throw someone in jail for arguing against the draft? You know, what was it that pushed back the other way? What was it that led to a reopening of the window of acceptable opinion or a reopening of the idea that you were allowed to voice controversial opinions without it being a cause for violence, state violence, in terms of putting someone in jail? And perhaps the answer to that is I'm just sort of rambling a bit, but I think perhaps the answer to that is partly that, you know, the war ends and people's temperatures go down in terms of their paranoia. You know, the Second World War ends and then we release the all the Japanese prisoners we've interned and the temperature on that goes down and civil yeah. liberties come back in that way. Right now, though, we're in more of a moment where the threat level, especially I think this is the kind of perhaps the most frightening thing about the framework being put around the virus is that everyone is a threat. So the threat level comes not just from a particular population that you can subdue, you win the war, it's over, but from every single one of your neighbors. This is being the, you know, the moment that we're in. Everyone is a threat to you. And how could you possibly allow people to post information that, you know, might get people killed about your own opinions about medical things or whatever else it is? And when do you unwind that? When is it that you get to a place where other individual human beings are not seen as a threat to you. I don't know that that's a winnable war, just like the war on terrorism isn't really a winnable 
war. Wars that can't be won are particularly useful, and we seem to be in a moment where we like to be in wars that can never end. Um, no, there, there's a lot there, I, I think, but I wonder to what extent and how we might learn about how things wound down in the past and whether that applies here in terms of getting back a, a wider yeah, swath to, of freedom to know of expression. History, and the history of free speech is a long one, going back thousands of years. Uh, here I would recommend um, the podcast Clear and Present Danger, you know, the title of which comes from that uh, judgment I just read. If I could summarize the overall trend, it's, it's that most governments and religions and any source of power don't want to give people freedom and speech and rights. They don't. They resist it. Anyone in power wants to keep the power and they want to squelch anyone who's going to threaten them with counter ideas. That's the history. So it's really taken thousands of years to win these uh, rights that we have. And uh, the idea that it's liberals now that are saying, well, we need to censor certain people and silence people. Oh, my God. You know, it took us thousands of years to get these rights because people in power, they don't want to give them up. Now you want to give them up. And, you know, it's, it's crazy. We have to fight for those constantly. And, you know, even in the United States, again, that that was the U.S. Supreme Court decision just a century ago. Like, you know, we're going to start silencing people that threaten what we consider to be, you know, the government's right to do what, what they want with uh, with their citizens. No, 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 that's a, that's a bad idea. And almost all moral progress has come from, first, people voicing their opinions about what they're unhappy about. So that's why the First Amendment protects uh, you know, it's not just free free speech, but also freedom of the press and freedom to assemble peacefully, and uh, those are all to get that wrapped up together in a in a they're bundled so to speak, because they they, they can't be disentangled. They they are this one and the same. You you start off with an idea in your head, then you got to communicate it to somebody else in their head, and that's you do that with words, either spoken or written. So you gotta you gotta have the speech and freedom of press and so on. That's so revolutions all come about through a gathering support for a particular idea, and it you know usually takes a long time. Now the gay rights revolution happened pretty fast. You know, it was 2011 that the majority of Americans finally you know 51 to 49 said they support the idea of gays getting married. That happened in 2011. Just before that, both Hillary and Obama voiced their opposition to same-sex marriage. And uh, then they both changed their mind after that. Of course, to be fair, when someone's on a campaign trail, you never know what they really believe because they got to say what they got to say to whoever they're speaking to. But that kind of turning point in 2011. And then 2015 was the Supreme Court decision. That's only four years. Wow, that's pretty fast. The, the women's rights movement, well, it's still going on, but really that was several decades. Civil rights movement for African Americans, longer still. And, uh, you know, these things usually take centuries or decades to unfold. And uh, so I, I think it's all accelerated now in part because of social, not just social media, but just uh, uh, mass communications of all kinds, television. You know, before really the whole Internet thing, people were talking about, you know, Ellen, Ellen coming out as gay on her television show. Am I getting that right? Yes. Yeah, I think that was 1990-something, yes. right? Before the internet really took off. Right? So just people getting exposed to the ideas and getting used to it, we know has, has a big effect on changing, expanding their moral sphere to include other people not like them as honorary family members or group members or citizens or people that deserve equal 
treatment under the law and equal dignity and respect. Okay, that all comes about from speech and you know the freedom to speak and write and print and publish and distribute whatever you want. So I should probably make a, a quick distinction between uh, public and private free speech laws. I mean, First Amendment, we're just talking about the government squelching your right to speak or the right of a newspaper to print what they want and so on. Um, privately, you know, here it gets a little murkier. You know, can Facebook, Twitter, and so forth um, kick off, kick Alex Jones off their, their site? Yes, they can. They're private companies. They're not governments. They're private companies, though. I'd, I'd say they're essentially at this point state actors. In a way, they're sort of like trusts. Yeah, and you know, the, we know that there are lots of people who work for the CIA who end up working for, you know, for mainstream newspapers and so forth, and that there's lots of back channels of communication between the government and pressures put on them and so forth. Yeah. This is not to argue that uh, any particular form of regulation is a good idea, that, you know, that forcing Facebook to do something in terms of content is a wise idea. But I, at this point, I don't think it's right to just consider them as normal actors in a robust private market. I think that they are essentially in one form or another state actors. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's a pretty interesting time we're in with that because they've been arguing they're more like the phone company uh, that just provides the lines that you talk on the phone with. And so you can libel or slander anybody you want over the phone and you can't sue AT&T for it. Um, but really, they're more like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal that publishes an op-ed that libels or slanders somebody. They are liable. You can sue them if you can prove that you were harmed from what they said. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 the you know, social media companies are kind of in the middle of that. And, you know, that it'll be interesting to see how this unfolds legally with, you know, regulations. You know, the moment somebody sues, say, Twitter because somebody posted something that hurt their reputation and they lost their job or whatever, and they can document lost income, therefore they can sue for a lot of money. Um, if, you know, Twitter, say, is held accountable for that, then that could open the door to, you know, hundreds of lawsuits, thousands, tens of thousands of lawsuits of, you know, people saying, well, you know, they should, they should not have allowed that to be posted on there. So then how does Facebook or Twitter edit? Like the New York Times gets maybe a couple hundred op-ed submissions a day. And they publish, you know, three or four. And, but they have enough staff. They can go through a couple hundred and pick out the ones they want. That's doable. But if you have, I don't know, I can't remember what the numbers are, a couple hundred million an hour postings on Twitter, whatever it is. Right, yeah. You have to use an algorithm, right? And, yeah. And that algorithm has to, over time, get ever more aggressive. I wonder about the end point of that quite a bit. I thought it was a huge mistake when Facebook began deciding on essentially a case-by-case -case basis over a few high-profile things that got posted, images that were newsworthy, but that were that violated their terms of service and other things that hadn't yet. And they started to wade into the sort of the politics of what was being posted on there. And that just, in my mind, opens the floodgates to Again, as I said earlier, you know you can you can fight the war um, with the 
tools you have and the rules that exist, or you can try to change the rules of the game or the ref. And right. what Facebook and Twitter have signaled over time is that, you know, if you want to win the war of ideas on on, on Twitter, you have two approaches you could out-argue or out-mob, I guess, and, and checkmark uh, swarms can attack people. Or, uh, or you, you know, or you can try to change the way that Twitter interacts with its users to get the people you don't like removed. And the more that Twitter or Facebook bend to that mob of aggressive folks who want to bend the rules, then the more it just encourages other people to, you know, to basically treat. Facebook or Twitter like a government agency and lobby them. Yeah. It's like yeah. if you're going to wade into the marketplace of ideas and decide which are which what's hate speech, then what we're going to do is try to convince you that these people are saying something that should get them deplatformed. Yeah. Right, you encourage that kind of bribing the ref or coercing the ref or threatening the ref right. behavior. Right. I kind of went on a Twitter rant this weekend because I watched that the new Netflix doc um, The Social Dilemma. So it's, you know, it features these prominent ex-programmers at Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, Pinterest, half a dozen of these guys, like Tristan Harris is probably the most famous of them. Um, and so first of all, they're acting like this is definitely unquestionably a problem. That is, social media is leading to uh, serious harm of our democracies, our freedoms, uh, our society, our culture, all the way down to harming teenage girls uh, because they're experiencing FOMO, fear of missing out. Or, right? So it kind of covered the whole range. And all these guys were sort of self-important, self-flagellating, acting like they're J. Robert Oppenheimer. I have blood on my hands because I invented nuclear weapons. You know, it's like, <laughs> first of all, dude, the like button is not a nuclear weapon, okay? You're not that important. And second of all, uh, and I posted links to this, um, there's no research showing that they had that much effect. In fact, Hugo Mercier's new book, Not Born Yesterday, uh, documents it's a whole chapter on all the research we have since 2016 on the role of social media on the election, you know, and the, the role of fake news and so on. The other scientist studying this is Brendan Nehan, who's a political scientist. Hugo Mercier is a cognitive scientist. So, and they have colleagues and other people working on this. And there's been, you know, maybe a, a dozen really good papers um, showing that the effects were next to nil. That, you know, anyone that would read on Twitter about, um, you know, the QAnon and the deep state and the Pizzagate and, you know, Hillary is running this pedophile ring of Satanists, you know, abusing children in a pizza parlor. To what extent they get that from social media, they're not going to vote for Hillary if you somehow convince them that was a bullshit story. It's not true. And they look at it and they go, yeah, okay, that's a, that was a crazy story. They're not going to go, well, in that case, I think I'll vote for Hillary. These were extremists anyway. They're already, people are, are for the most part, already set uh, who they're going to vote for, which party they, they support and so on. And all the way down to um, the, uh, the, you know, the effects of social media on teenagers, say. Uh, so the, the first studies on this were reported by uh, Jean Twangy in her book, iGen. It's a great book, really interesting. Uh, but the follow-up studies on that showing that uh, linking the correlations between screen time and rates of depression and anxiety, suicidal ideation, uh, and so forth, cutting, actual physical cutting and so on. Uh, so her initial claim in the book was that there is a causal, there's a correlation, but of course, 
is there causation? And so she made an argument that there is a causal connection. Several studies since then, it failed to replicate. And then another study since then found that it's wrong, that is not correct. It is not screen time. Uh, and it's not social media. It's other things, other factors. Okay. Well, that's still fairly new. You know, that has yet to be played out in the scientific literature. But my larger point is that, you know, it, this is much ado about probably nothing. There, there is probably not a problem that needs to be solved. Therefore, the government has to rush in to regulate social media, break up Google, break up Facebook. Oh, my God. You know, this is just crazy. Uh, you know, these companies are not as powerful as you think they are. And I know, again, to, for a you know, middle-aged guy to say, just shut it off. Stop using your phone. Don't use social media because I don't use it much. I use Twitter. But, and, of course, I use my phone to take pictures or whatever, but make phone calls. But, you know, I don't have a lot of apps. And, you know, I know it sounds easy for me to say. But, again, turn to the literature. Is there scientific evidence that shows people's minds are being corrupted or their opinions are being tilted to one candidate or the other? The answer appears to be no. It surprises me. I, there's a lot of money that funnels through those platforms in terms of influencing people's opinions. Huge, huge money, yeah, yeah. And certainly it is the case that I think that, and again, this is not uh, to say that the solution lies in government. I think people automatically assume that if you point out something that's gone wrong in a, you know, in a private system, or in this case, a semi-private system, that that means that, you know, the government has to do something. But um, I don't think that that's the logical next conclusion. But at any rate, um, I think that as individuals, we face a battle against companies that have spent literally billions and billions of dollars figuring out how to best capture our attention and get us addicted to what they're doing. The attention economy, they call it, yeah. the attention economy. For sure. Yeah. And yeah. and to get you clicking and, and, and those things. And I feel that this is not an equal battle. I think over time that we will collectively develop antibodies to this and strategies through culture to adapt to that kind of a hyper-addictive environment. But we don't have them yet, right? So I, I, I certainly, for my part, don't downplay that. And I also don't downplay the fact that even though people are by and large already sorted into tribes and that they do already seek out things that confirm their own beliefs about, you know, the evil things that the other is doing um, and that, you know, and that being able to go down QAnon rabbit holes is not necessarily going to change your your vote. I think that there is certainly, I think, a, a realistic assumption on the part of those who are lobbying Facebook to get their people who they disagree with kicked off that that doing that and doing that in a large enough way, or at least creating an atmosphere in which people who believe certain things are afraid to say it, like you've mentioned about in your classroom, that that does have an effect, right? That moving things in that way will perhaps change culture and change people's minds and will perhaps lead one side to a kind of cultural victory. Well, to your point on how much money companies are spending buying advertising on Facebook, for example, you know, the argument made, say, in this film, Social Dilemma, is that, well, it must work because they're, they're spending billions of dollars. Not necessarily. Again, Hugo Mercier has a whole chapter on advertising, not, not just social media, going back to the 60s and you know, the 70s when, when uh, politicians started spending serious money on radio, television, advertising. Does it work? 
Well, he makes a pretty good case, and, and again, it's not just him. He it, it's a it's a book of science with hundreds and hundreds of citations. So lots of people study this. Political scientists have been studying the roles of advertising in campaigns for decades. And the overwhelming evidence seems to be it's a waste of money. Really, you're, you're, you're not swinging very many votes in your favor. I mean, people are either going to, in a way, what political advertising does is it it's a virtue signaling to your tribe. Look, I'm spending so much money because, you know, we really believe in our values. and But very few people, um, you know, watch these things and go, okay, I couldn't decide who I was going to vote for, so I'm going to vote for this person now that I, I saw this ad. He has another chapter on, you know, historically going back even further, because I've always been interested in and I've written a lot about the Nazis and how is it that, you know, highly educated, intelligent, cultured Europeans like Germans could be turned into these goose-stepping Nazis in, in, in a matter of a few years? And the answer is they didn't. Um, the, the Nazis never had a majority of support, you know, all the way back to 33 when they want, uh, w you know, they, they got into power, but in, uh, uh, on a minority of votes, and then they kind of strong arm their way into, into the dictatorship. And, and, uh, you know, Hitler had himself declared, um, essentially dictator for life and, and they ended the democracy and all that. The majority of Germans never accepted national socialism. The majority of them just kept their mouth shut because they could see what was happening to those dissenters who pushed back against national socialism. They were imprisoned. They were sent off to the concentration camps, of which there were, you know, hundreds and hundreds, really thousands of these camps. Um, there's a whole book, a huge, thick book called KL. Uh, it's the Concentration Concentration Lager system, and there was just thousands of these camps. So you have two things. One, you have the um, pluralistic ignorance in which everybody thinks everybody else is a believer in the ideology, even though they're not. And two, you suppress the press and, uh, and media, and you censor people by locking them up. And that signals to other people, keep your mouth shut. Uh, or else you're next. And so you could have this whole thing, which floated for 12 years, from 1933 to 1945, in, in the ether without ever having a majority of support. And so um, uh, Hugo sh shows some of these studies from historians who study national socialism uh, using, um, you, you know, the surveys at the time and, and just other kind of proxies for what people were thinking, that they never had a majority. So this idea that... You know, some nefarious advertiser or social media company can sweep in and just sort of take over the minds of the majority of a population. It can't be done. It's next to impossible. I just want to chime in that that may have been one of the most frightening things anybody has said on this podcast, that all of that happened without majority support, that it happened with a group of highly dedicated, highly obviously intolerant folks who were able to suppress the opposition and their ability to communicate. Yeah, it's hard to do, though. Uh, it was easier then. It's harder now because there weren't very many democracies back then, and they weren't very effective at dealing with agitators like Hitler, Stalin, whatever. Um, and, and so again, but you have to have that, the, the element of suppressing the, the press and, you know, even though people call Hit, you know, Trump, you know, the orange Hitler or whatever, you know, he's not tried to lock up, uh, journalists and shut down the New York times. He can whine all he wants about the failing New York times, 
but he's never tried to, to, to have them outlawed or, or put in jail or the company shut down. Uh, that's what you have to do. And that that is very unlikely to happen in most Western nations now. I mean, European countries after the Second World War said, okay, we're not doing that again. And here's what we're going to do to prevent another Hitler from coming into place. Now, I think they went too far on, you know, like like making Holocaust denial a crime. You know, that, that, that that's, that's getting a little too extreme. Uh, but they have many things in place to prevent that from happening again. So I doubt it could happen in the United States because we have so many laws protecting those freedoms. But again, this is why I, I worry about, you know, the, the kind of the illiberalism of the left saying, well, we need to start censoring people. Oh, no, wait a minute. No, that's how we find out if the, you know, if the crazies are, how crazy they are, um, that, that, you know, we identify them. Anyway, uh, I was going to say, just to point out, just to be fair, um, you know, Hugo and myself, Steve Pinker and a few others, we support this uh, not born yesterday thesis that people are not as gullible as a lot of cognitive psychologists think that people are like, uh, you know, Tversky and Kahneman and and that whole camp of people are are, are super susceptible to cognitive biases. Yes, these are true. But Gert Gingerinzer wrote a book, several books, countering the Tversky-Kahneman argument, showing that people are not that irrational if you present them the arguments or the puzzle in a particular way, in a way that's ecologically coherent with what our minds evolved to do. So there's this famous Wasson test where you you have four cards on the table and two of them are turned up and you give subjects some rule. Like if if there's a, I forget what it is, if there's a number on one side, there's a vowel on the other, I forget what it is. Anyway, it's one of these logic puzzles and most people do really bad at it. But if you present it in in a more of a human social context, like you're a bouncer at a bar and you have to card people who might be drinking, people solve the puzzles much better. So Gingerinzer's point, and much to Danny Kahneman's consternation in a way because he makes really good arguments that, you know, all the puzzles that Tversky and Kahneman give subjects to solve, when you read their papers, it's like, I'm I'm so confused about what they're trying to get me to do here that if you reword it in a way that's much simpler, much more socially contextual in the kinds of problems that our brains evolved to solve in the savannah of these small hunter-gatherer bands, we're not that gullible. We're not that stupid. We're not that cognitively biased. And so Hugo's thesis of his book, Not Born Yesterday, is that we do not default to just believing everything, because that's the other side, the, the default to truth. We just think everybody. We just trust everybody. You know, Malcolm Gladwell kind of floats this idea in his latest book, Talking to Strangers. This is his MO. You know, he finds one psychologist he likes who has this one idea that, you know, is kind of catchy. And this is the default to truth. We just believe everybody. No, we don't. Actually, we're, we're pretty good skeptics, you know, in the right context. It's very context dependent. To me, this is really optimistic that this whole scaremongering about the 2016 election and what's going to happen in 2020, don't worry about the Russians and Facebook. Worry about gerrymandering and worry about voter suppression. You know, these are real issues that have been around for, you know, a, a century. And, and those are the real threats to democracy. You know, let's, let's have, you know, you got to have three pieces of ID to get your vote, you know, made, you know, why is it always Republicans that want, you know, these certain rules to put in place? Well, we know why, <laughs> you know, they, they don't want minorities to vote because minorities are going to vote Democratic. Forget Facebook. This is the real issue here, this gerrymandering and, and voter suppression.
for the listeners, in my discussion with Russ Roberts of Econ Talk, we talked about behavioral economics, and uh, I expressed some of my strong criticisms of it. I agree with you that people are often just using different heuristics than the ones that an experimenter might expect them to use, or they have different information, and there's lots of ways in which what might look like irrational behavior to the experimenter is actually just they're optimizing on uh, something different than what that person expects, or they have different information. I think that that is a good point to leave off in terms of your point of what the true worries are out there. Did you have any other thoughts about that and what people should be truly concerned about? After I watched The Social Dilemma and, and did my Twitter rant against that, then the next in my queue on Netflix, again, those Netflix programmers have tricked me into watching these documentaries. I have no control. I cannot hit the off button. <laughs> oh, no. So I watched the next one in the queue, which was... Um, Capital in the 21st Century. This is uh, Piketty's book mm-hmm. that was made into a documentary, and it's it's really a great documentary. It's really powerful. But this goes back, you know, 300, 400 years of the you know the roots of capitalism and inequality and how property was owned and distributed and inherited, and all those things that you know kind of bring us up to the modern world. That's where the action is. You want to know what rules the world, what causes big things to happen that affect everybody's lives. Really, it's in economic history, economic and political history, or political economics. Um, that you know, that's where the action is. That's a good documentary. That's scary. So Piketty's he's what we would call liberal, and he and they feature Joseph Stiglitz who's a noted kind of liberal economist. Uh, And there's a little too much of a slant in that direction for my taste because there's good arguments on the other side. But all this revolves around just like which tax rate or what should the capital gains tax be or what should the rate of inheritance tax be or whatever. You know, these are debatable points. But the larger one is that these whole issues are what totally drive civilization and cause huge changes. You know, not the like button on Facebook. Sorry, it's you're not that powerful. Okay. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. Sounds good. Michael, thanks for coming on the filter. Oh, you're welcome. And thanks for having me. This was a good conversation. We hit a lot of big points. I agree. Thanks for listening to The Filter with Matt Asher. You can find show notes at thefilter.org or follow user Matt Asher on the socials.